Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody from the ACFE, the Media Manager. And today I will be speaking with Eileen Leslie, CFE, CPA, and a Senior Forensic Analyst with Forensic Strategic Solutions. Thank you for joining us today, Eileen. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the False Claims Act and some key Tom lawsuits and kind of the ins and outs of those and what they mean and how people see this in the news and then how fraud investigators actually deal with these cases. So to get us started, Eileen, why don't you tell us a little bit about the False Claims Act and how it relates to key Tom cases? Well, the False Claims Act has been around for many, many years. It started at the Lincoln Law in the Civil War era, where the government found out fraud was being committed against them. And basically, that's what the whole False Claims Act is based on, is anybody who presents a false claim to the government for payment of some sort. And there's many different ways that you can have a False Claim Act case brought. They're brought by the agency, where an agency does an audit or something against a company that is a government contractor, and they find that there was some fraud. Also, because there's fraud everywhere, fraud is so rampant in the government, the government really needs help from the citizen. One part of the False Claims Act claims is through key TAM cases, and that's where a whistleblower comes forth with information regarding a violation of a rule, law, or regulation. And then the government can potentially intervene with the KETAM case and pursue that false claim. And they can file a case uh, with the federal court system and bring a case against this alleged bad actor to expose this violation. And so they're called a relator, and they would get an attorney to file this lawsuit for them. So the, re- the person who's filing the lawsuit for them is the relator yes. working with the well, victim? The relator is the one who has the direct knowledge from oh, okay. the okay. alleged violator. Okay. So they're the whistleblower. It's called a whistleblower or a relator. The legal term is the relator. And the relator obtains counsel to help them file this action in the federal court system. The expert is there to calculate the single damages. That's what the certified fraud examiner is doing. We're we're going in, and we are going to be charged with understanding the rule, law, regulation, understanding how it was violated, and then we are to calculate the damages based on that violation. And that is so important to calculate those damages properly because once you come up with your single damage calculation, The government takes that number and then can use that in its negotiations. They can, they're allowed to go for treble damages or three times the amount of the single damages. But normally, um, they'll settle the case and they'll settle for double damages. But it's just really important to come up with a very uh, accurate single damages and that's what the expert is hired to do. So, quick question, do they typically retain counsel within a company or do they go outside of a company? No, it's, it's outside of the company. Okay. Typically, how somebody becomes a relator is they work inside the company and they have this knowledge that a bad act is going on, fraud is being committed. They typically would go through the system within their company. Um, they have a reporting system, they go up through their chain of command and 
try to get the issues resolved. Mm -hmm. If they can't get an issue resolved and they feel very strongly that this fraud is occurring, then they can go obtain outside counsel and file a lawsuit on behalf of the government. So the okay. government is part of the lawsuit, but they're not really intervened yet. So they're, the government is not acting on this lawsuit. It's purely on the relator's side. Okay. And so once that lawsuit is filed, it's filed under seal. So it's, it's not exposed. It's not known who's made this filing. Then the relator's counsel contacts the government and says, hey, we have this lawsuit, and we think you guys are going to be interested in it. We'd like to come present this to you, to present our case to you. And so they take their case and meet with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that's where they give the facts of their, um, their alleged violation. And then the government at that point decides if it wants to intervene or become okay. part of the lawsuit or not. And so that's where you, you worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and so you kind of made up that team that they would present to? Yes. Okay, so kind of tell me yes. more about that team and what role you played and then you know, the other roles that were part of that team as well. The U.S. Attorney's Office has a civil side and a criminal side, and I worked on the civil side in the Affirmative Civil Enforcement Division, and I was a financial analyst there. I supported about five to six attorneys um, who handled false claims act cases, being healthcare fraud, royalties fraud, contract fraud, um, a, a wide variety of issues. Mm -hmm. So it was basically the U.S. the assistant U.S. attorneys and me who listened to the cases. Uh, sometimes there would be agency representatives there, special agents from the organization or auditors, and then sometimes we would have subject matter experts that we would have to hire. So say in a oil and gas royalty case, we would have to hire subject matter experts. But otherwise, it's just a very small team, and um, we had, like I said, four to five, six attorneys at a time, and they were handling all of the cases that were brought in. Wow. So how many cases do you think you had going on at one time? Roughly each attorney had about 60 cases. Tell me the process of you submit your claim, you, does everything get looked at and, you know, read over and formally introduced where somebody comes in and presents the case to you? Well, how it occurred is we would have the initial contact from the relator's attorney, and we'd do an uh, initial assessment of the case and to see just, you know, basic credibility. Does it make sense? Was there any other lawsuits going on where this could just be, you know, a, a uh, disgruntled employee? You know, we, we do a ba we, we, they did a basic uh, analysis of credibility. After that first intake, if it is believed that there is a potential case, then they would be invited into the U.S. Attorney's Office to present to the attorney. When that occurred, because there are so many cases that each attorney, you know, has, it's very important that the cases that are brought to the U.S. Attorney's Office are packaged easily, mm -hmm. making it easily understandable 
to them. As I said, there are many different agencies, governmental agencies, and fraud is happening in all of the agencies. Mm -hmm. And so when a case is brought to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney may never have been exposed to that particular organization or law or rule that has been being violated. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're not an expert on everything. They have to be presented this case to them in an easily manner so that they understand it so that they will be able to process the case appropriately. So just like you said, you know, the cases that were most often pursued you know, were the easy ones. And you mentioned that in an article that you recently wrote for InsideCounsel.com. What do you, you know, what, what did an easy one look like to you? And what can people keep in mind when they're presenting those cases? So easy doesn't necessarily mean the content is easy. Um, very um, intelligent people work for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so when I, when I speak of easy, I say it's easy for the U.S. Attorney to understand. Mm-hmm. The, the case needs to be prepared in a way so the government wants to intervene in it. You need to know the rule, law, or regulation that has been violated, provide a copy of that to the government, articulate the violation or the alleged violation from the relator, be able to supply supporting backup documentation, have it organized in a binder, in a very structured manner with tabs, you know, prepare a visual PowerPoint. And what I mean by visual PowerPoint is don't just have a bunch of words up there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, lots of pictures, lots of diagrams to help in the understanding of the flow of information um, really, really helps out. It also makes it easy for the U.S. attorney to be able to understand it and then use that to present it to the alleged violator. So it makes that process that much more simple to do as well. So in that meeting, is the relator there along with counsel or is it just counsel? Typically, the relator will be there. The relator is the one who is basically their expert, right? Mm-hmm. They're the subject matter expert. They're the ones who are were in the, the down and dirty of the company, you know, in the weeds and know it, um, know the violation better than anybody. And so they bring that to everybody else's attention who can then verify it and then um, the expert's position would be then to uh, verify that fraud and then calculate the single damages based on that alleged fraud. So why do you think it's important to have, you know, an expert like yourself in the room and how does that help build credibility? Having an expert on your case is crucial. I mean, an expert can make or break the case. Finding and utilizing the right expert will bring credibility to your case just on the basis of it. I've dealt with experts that have knowledge or credentials, I'll say that, but really don't know what they're doing. And they don't know how to communicate, even if they do know what they're doing. So. A seasoned certified fraud examiner, especially one focused on forensic accounting, has the education and experience needed to be able to detect and understand an unlimited amount of fraudulent scenarios. But that's only the beginning. Mm -hmm. To truly be effective, you must have the ability to articulate your findings to people of all understanding and interest levels. 
um, you know, to people who have, you know, law degrees to potentially, you know, a juror who has a high school diploma. It's my job to obtain a thorough understanding of the issues, perform an unbiased analysis of the facts, and make sure all necessary parties understand my damage calculations and findings. And that in and of itself brings that credibility to the case. That's, that's really good. So do you have any tips for subject matter experts that are new to adding subject matter expert after their name? <laughs> <laughs> well, my tip, how I view experts is, experts is, to be an expert, that is a legal finding in a court. A court of law is, uh, the judge is the one who determines if you are an expert and able to testify. My personal belief is an expert in that you conduct your way in an expert manner. I want to conduct myself in having full knowledge of the issues. Uh, I want to be unbiased. I want to look at just the facts, and I'm, I, I'm not going to be hired by somebody to produce an opinion for them. Um, and so to me, that's what a true expert is, somebody who's looking at all the facts, relaying an unbiased opinion, and making sure everybody thoroughly understands the, the, the matter of the case. We recently had a Sentinel winner, which is our For Choosing Truth Over Self winner at our annual conference in June, to a, a guy named James Holtz-Richter. His case went on 17 and a half years before he was actually awarded money. What advice do you have for people that, you know, gets, I mean, these cases often do take time and they take patience and, you know, sometimes the attorney's office doesn't want to take it. Sometimes they won't take it for years and then they will take it if you get more evidence. Um, so what advice do you have for those people out there that, are just kind of struggling about how long it's taking or getting frustrated or, you know, because we all know that being a whistleblower is, is hard <laughs> from, from all the things that we've seen and, it, you know, pretty much can take a toll on your life. So I guess what thoughts do you have or, or what do you tell people, you know, that bring things in that are just kind of at, their, at the end of their rope? I think the most important thing is in your prep work. You're absolutely right. These cases take years and years, and it's extremely hard on the relator, especially when the relator is a bona fide relator, and I mean that as they truly care about what is right, and they're doing this for that sole purpose. They have to be commended, first and foremost. It is a long process, and it's very, it can ruin your career. It can cause so much stress in your personal life as well as your professional life. And the biggest thing that I can say from my perspective, both working at the U.S. Attorney's Office and now providing services to Relators Council, is be prepared. Make sure you have a case before you start pursuing it. Because once you're in the pursuing avenue, there you can get stuck. Mm -hmm. And the more prepared you are before you even start pursuing, the easier and the less time it's going to be. Get support. Support, support, support. Support is needed. Get 
financial support, get family and friends support. There's even, you know, organizations out there that really help out relators. There's an organization called Taxpayer Against Fraud. There's lots of resources out there, and I say just reach out to as many people as you can for that support. So what types of cases or type of case do you see the most? There's many different types of cases that are brought to the U.S. Attorney's Office for evaluation. Most of them right now, the big hot topic is Medicare fraud. And so there's a lot of relators coming out with that because there's a lot of people who are more in the weeds and can see the fraud happening in our healthcare system, unfortunately. And so right now, that's probably the biggest pursued uh, false uh, claim act TAM case that's out there. Uh, but there's just as many big dollars, especially with um, going through the wars that we just um, are wrapping up on, is there's a lot of contract fraud, wartime fraud um, that's really devastating and, and high dollars. Um, otherwise, there's all other kinds of fraud out there. There's one, a topic that's really big in the Colorado district right now is uh, oil and gas or royalty type fraud. They're just really starting to pursue that type of fraud and that's very, um, it can be very lucrative. So they're really reaching out to get people to, you know, come forth with some royalty fraud for the uh, key TAM cases. So any last thoughts or bits of advice or anything you want fraud investigators, fraud examiners to know about key TAM cases? Well, key TAM cases are very important. They're very important to our society. And the advice that I would give to other professionals out there looking to provide expert services to these cases is please be responsible. Be real in your expectations of what you can do. Um, find somebody who has the experience to be able to guide you appropriately so that you are gaining a full understanding of the issues at hand. You're able to use that to calculate an accurate single damages and, um, you know, just be credible. Go by the facts, be responsible, and make sure that it's right. That's great. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you to Eileen and thank you to you for listening to another episode of the ACFE's monthly podcast, Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody signing off. And please feel free to look at all of our other podcasts that we've got up on our site at acfe.com slash podcasts.